Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You've tried to get into the locked Honeysuckle Cottage by P.G. Woodhouse. Do you believe in ghosts? asked Mr. Mulliner abruptly. I weighed the question thoughtfully. I was a little surprised, for nothing in our previous conversation had suggested the topic. Well, I replied, I don't like them, if that's what you mean. I was once butted by one as a child. Ghosts, not goats. Oh, ghosts! Do I believe in ghosts? Exactly. Well, yes, and no. Let me put it another way, said Mr. Mulliner patiently. Do you believe in haunted houses? Do you believe that it is possible for a malign influence to envelop a place and work a spell on all who come within its radius? I hesitated. Well, no. And, uh, yes. Mr. Mulliner sighed a little. He seemed to be wondering if I was always as bright as this. Of course, I went on. One has read stories. Henry James's uh, The Turn of the Screw. I'm not talking about fiction. Well, uh, in real life, well, uh, look here, I once, as a matter of fact, did meet a man who knew a fellow. My distant cousin, James Rodman, spent some weeks in a haunted house, said Mr. Mulliner, who, if he has a fault, is not a very good listener. It cost him five thousand pounds. That is to say, he sacrificed five thousand pounds by not remaining there. Did you ever, he asked, wondering, it seemed to me from the subject, hear of Layla J. Pinckney? Naturally I had heard of Layla J. Pinckney. Her death some years ago has diminished her vogue, but at one time it was impossible to pass a bookshop or a railway bookstall without seeing a long row of her novels. I have never myself actually read any of them, but I knew that in her particular line of literature, the uh, squashily sentimental, she had always been regarded by those entitled to judge as preeminent. The critics usually headed their reviews of her stories with the words, Another Pinkney, or sometimes more offensively, Another Pinkney, with uh, three exclamation marks. And once, dealing with, I think, uh, the love which prevails, the literary expert of the scrutinizer had compressed his entire critique into the single phrase, Oh, God. Of course, I said. What about her? She was James Rodman's aunt. Yes? And when she died, James found that she had left him five thousand pounds and a house in the country where she had lived for the last twenty years of her life. A very nice little legacy. Twenty years, repeated Mr. Mulliner. Grasp that, for it has a vital bearing on what follows. Twenty years, mind you, and Miss Pinkney turned out two novels and twelve short stories regularly every year besides a monthly page of advice to young girls in one of the magazines. That is to say, forty of her novels and no fewer than two hundred and forty of her short stories were written under the roof of Honeysuckle Cottage. Pretty name? A nasty, sloppy name, said Mr. Mulliner severely which should have warned my distant cousin James from the start. Have you a pencil and a piece of paper? He scribbled for a while, poring frowningly over columns of figures. Yes, he said, looking up. If my calculations are correct, 
Layla J. Pinkney wrote in all a matter of 9,140,000 words of glutinous sentimentality at Honeysuckle Cottage, and it was a condition of her will that James should reside there for six months in every year. Failing to do this, he was to forfeit the £5,000. It must be great fun making a freak will, I mused. I often wish I was rich enough to do it. This was not a freak will. The conditions are perfectly understandable. James Rodman was a writer of sensational mystery stories, and his aunt Layla had always disapproved of his work. She was a great believer in the influence of environment, and the reason why she inserted that clause in her will was that she wished to compel James to move from London to the country. She considered that living in London hardened him and made his outlook on life sordid. She often asked him if he thought it quite nice to harp so much on sudden death and blackmailers with squints. Surely, she said, there were enough squinting blackmailers in the world without writing about them. The fact that literature meant such different things to these two had, I believe, caused something of a coolness between them, and James had never dreamed that he would be remembered in his aunt's will. For he had never concealed his opinion that Layla J. Pinkney's style of writing revolted him, however dear it might be to her enormous public. He held rigid views on the art of the novel, and always maintained that an artist with a true reverence for his craft should not descend into gooey love stories, but should stick austerely to revolvers, cries in the night, missing papers, mysterious chinamen, and dead bodies, with or without a gash in throat. And not even the thought that his aunt had dandled him on her knee as a baby could induce him to stifle his literary conscience to the extent of pretending to enjoy her work. First, last, and all the time, James Rodman had held the opinion, and voiced it fearlessly, that Layla J. Pinkney wrote Bilge. It was a surprise to him, therefore, to find that he had been left this legacy. A pleasant surprise, of course. James was making quite a decent income out of the three novels and eighteen short stories which he produced annually, but an author can always find a use for five thousand pounds. And as for the cottage, he had actually been looking about for a little place in the country at the very moment when he received the lawyer's letter. In less than a week, he was installed at his new residence. James's first impressions of Honeysuckle Cottage were, me tells me, wholly favourable. He was delighted with the place. It was a low, rambling, picturesque old house, with funny little chimneys and a red roof placed in the middle of the most charming country. With its oak beams, its trim garden, its trilling birds and its rose-hung porch, it was the ideal spot for a writer. It was just the sort of place, he reflected whimsically, which his aunt had loved to write about in her books. Even the apple-cheeked old housekeeper who attended to his needs might have stepped straight out of one of them. It seemed to James that his lot had been cast in pleasant places. He had brought down his books, his pipes and his golf clubs, and was hard at work finishing the best thing he had ever done. The Secret Nine was the title of it, and on the beautiful summer afternoon on which this story opens, he was in the study 
hammering away at his typewriter at peace with the world. The machine was running sweetly. The new tobacco he had bought the day before was proving admirable, and he was moving on all six cylinders to the end of a chapter. He shoved in a fresh sheet of paper, chewed his pipe thoughtfully for a moment, then wrote rapidly. For an instant, Lester Gage thought he must have been mistaken. Then the noise came again, faint but unmistakable, a soft scratching on the outer panel. His mouth set in a grim line, silently like a panther, he made one quick step to the desk, noiselessly opened a drawer, drew out his automatic. After that affair of the poisoned needle, he was taking no chances. Still in dead silence, he tiptoed to the door. Then, flinging it suddenly open, he stood there, his weapon poised. On the mat stood the most beautiful girl he had ever beheld, a veritable child of fairy. She eyed him for a moment with a saucy smile, then, with a pretty, roguish look of reproof, shook a dainty forefinger at him. I believe you've forgotten me, Mr. Gage, she fluted with a mock severity which her eyes belied. James stared at the paper dumbly. He was utterly perplexed. He had not had the slightest intention of writing anything like this. To begin with, it was a rule with him, and one which he never broke, to allow no girls to appear in his stories. Sinister landladies, yes, and naturally any amount of adventuresses with foreign accents, but never, under any pretext, what might be broadly described as girls. A detective story, he maintained, should have no heroine. Heroines only held up the action and tried to flirt with the hero when he should have been busy looking for clues, and then went and let the villain kidnap them by some childishly simple trick. In his writing, James was positively monastic. And yet here was this creature, with her saucy smile and her dainty forefinger horning in at the most important point in the story. It was uncanny. He looked once more at his scenario. Well, the scenario was all right. In perfectly plain words, it stated that what happened when the door opened was that a dying man fell in. And after gasping, The beetle! Tell Scotland Yard that the blue beetle is! expired on the hearthrug, leaving Lester Gage not unnaturally somewhat mystified. Nothing whatever about any beautiful girls. In a curious mood of irritation, James scratched out the offending passage, wrote in the necessary corrections, and put the cover on the machine. It was at this point he heard William whining. The only blot in this paradise which James had so far been able to discover was the infernal dog William. Belonging nominally to the gardener, on the very first morning he had adopted James by acclamation, and he maddened and infuriated James. He had a habit of coming and whining under the window when James was at work. The latter would ignore this as long as he could, then, when the thing became insupportable, would bound out of his chair to see the animal standing on the gravel, gazing expectantly up at him with a stone in its mouth. William had a weak-minded passion for chasing stones. 
and on the first day James, in a rash spirit of camaraderie, had flung one for him. Since then James had thrown no more stones, but he had thrown any number of other solids, and the garden was littered with objects ranging from matchboxes to a plaster statuette of the young Joseph prophesying before Pharaoh. And still William came and whined, an optimist to the last. The whining, coming now at a moment when he felt irritable and unsettled, acted on James much as the scratching on the door and acted on Lester Gage. Silently, like a panther, he made one quick step to the mantelpiece, removed from it a china mug bearing the legend, A Present from Clacton-on-Sea, and crept to the window. And as he did so, a voice outside said, Go away, sir, go away! and there followed a short high-pitched bark which was certainly not William's. William was a mixture of Airedale, Setter, Bull Terrier and Mastiff, and when in a vocal mood favoured the Mastiff side of his family. James peered out. There, on the porch, stood a girl in blue. She held in her arms a small fluffy white dog, and she was endeavouring to foil the upward movement towards this of the blackguard William. William's mentality had been arrested some years before at the point where he imagined that everything in the world had been created for him to eat. A bone, a boot, a stake, the back wheel of a bicycle, it was all one to William. If it was there, he tried to eat it. He had even made a plucky attempt to devour the remains of the young Joseph prophesying before Pharaoh, and it was perfectly plain now that he regarded the curious wriggling object in the girl's arms purely in the light of a snack to keep body and soul together till dinner time. William! bellowed James. William looked courteously over his shoulder, with eyes that beamed with the pure light of a life's devotion, wagged the whip-like tail which he had inherited from his bull terrier ancestor, and resumed his intent scrutiny of the fluffy dog. Oh, please! cried the girl. This great rough dog is frightening poor Toto. The man of letters and the man of action do not always go hand in hand, but practice had made James perfect in handling with a swift efficiency any situation that involved William. A moment later that canine moron, having received a present from Clacton in the short ribs, was scuttling round the corner of the house, and James had jumped through the window and was facing the girl. She was an extraordinarily pretty girl. Very sweet and fragile she looked as she stood there under the honeysuckle with the breeze ruffling a tendril of golden hair that strayed from beneath her coquettish little hat. Her eyes were very big and very blue, her rose-tinted face becomingly flushed, or wasted on James, though. He disliked all girls, and particularly the sweet, droopy type. Did you want to see somebody? he asked stiffly. Just the house, said the girl, if it wouldn't be giving any trouble. I do so want to see the room where Miss Pinkney wrote her books. This is where Lila J. Pinkney used to live, isn't it? Yes, I'm her nephew. My name is James Rodman. Mine is Rose Maynard. James led the way into the house, and she stopped with a cry of delight on the threshold of the morning room. Oh, how too perfect, she cried. So this was her study? Yes. What a wonderful place it would be for you to think in if you were a writer, too. 
James held no high opinion of women's literary taste, but nevertheless he was conscious of an unpleasant shock. I am a writer, he said coldly. I write detective stories. I'm, I, I'm afraid, she blushed. I, I'm afraid I don't often read detective stories. You, and uh, no doubt, prefer, said James, still more coldly, this sort of thing my aunt used to write. Oh, I love her stories, cried the girl, clasping her hands ecstatically. Don't you? I cannot say that I do. What? They are pure apple sauce, said James sternly. Just nasty blobs of sentimentality, thoroughly untrue to life. The girl stared. Why, that's just what's so wonderful about them, their trueness to life. You feel they might all have happened. I don't understand what you mean. They were walking down the garden now. James held the gate open for her and she passed through into the road. Well, for one thing, he said, I decline to believe that a marriage between two young people is invariably preceded by some violent and sensational experience in which they both share. Are you, you thinking of Scent of the Blossom, where Edgar saves Maud from drowning? I am thinking of every single one of my aunt's books. He looked at her curiously. He had just got the solution of a mystery which had been puzzling him for some time. Almost from the moment he had set eyes on her, she had seemed somehow strangely familiar. It now suddenly came to him why it was that he disliked her so much. Do you know, he said, you might be one of my aunt's heroines yourself. You're just the sort of girl she used to love to write about. Her face lit up. Oh, do you really think so? She hesitated. Do you know what I've been feeling ever since I came here? I've been feeling that you are exactly like one of Miss Pinkney's heroes. No, I say really, said James, revolted. Oh, but you are. When you jumped through that window, it gave me quite a start. You're so exactly like Claude Masterton in Heather Over the Hills. I haven't read Heather Over the Hills, said James with a shudder. He was very strong and quiet, with deep, dark, sad eyes. James did not explain that his eyes were sad because her society gave him a pain in the neck. He merely laughed scornfully. So now, I suppose, he said, a car will come and knock you down, and I shall carry you gently into the house and lay you— Look out! he cried. It was too late. She was lying in a little huddled heap at his feet. Round the corner a large automobile had come, bowling, keeping with an almost affected precision to the wrong side of the road. It was now receding into the distance. The occupant of the tonneau, a stout, red-faced gentleman in a fur coat, leaning over the back. He had bared his head, not, one fears, as a pretty gesture of respect and regret, but because he was using his hat to hide the number plate. The dog, Toto, was unfortunately uninjured. James carried the girl gently into the house and laid her on the sofa in the morning room. He rang the bell and the apple-cheeked housekeeper appeared. Send for the doctor, said James. There's been an accident. The housekeeper bent over the girl. A teary, teary, she said, bless her sweet, pretty face. The gardener, he who technically owned William, was routed out from among the young lettuces and told to fetch Dr. Brady. He separated his bicycle from William, who was making a light meal off the left pedal, and departed on his mission. 
Dr. Brady arrived, and in due course he made his report. No bones broken, but a number of nasty bruises, and of course the shock. She will have to stay here for some time, Rodman. Can't be moved. Stay here, but she can't. It isn't proper. Your housekeeper will act as a chaperone. The doctor sighed. He was a stolid-looking man of middle age with side whiskers. A beautiful girl, that Rodman, he said. I suppose so, said James. A sweet, beautiful girl. An elfin child. A, a what? cried James, starting. This imagery was very foreign to Dr. Brady as he knew him. On the only previous occasion on which they had had any extended conversation, the doctor had talked exclusively about the effect of too much protein on the gastric juices. An elfin child, a tender, fairy creature. When I was looking at her just now, Rodman, I nearly broke down. Her little hand lay on the coverlet like some white lily floating on the surface of a still pool, and her dear, trusting eyes gazed up at me. He potted off down the garden, still babbling, and James stood staring after him blankly. And slowly, like some cloud athwart a summer sky, there crept over James's heart the chill shadow of a nameless fear. It was about a week later that Mr. Andrew McKinnon, the senior partner in the well-known firm of literary agents McKinnon and Gooch, sat in his office in Chancery Lane, frowning thoughtfully over a telegram. He rang the bell. Ask Mr. Gooch to step in here. He resumed his study of the telegram. Oh, Gooch, he said, when his partner appeared. I've just had a curious wire from young Rodman. He seems to want to see me very urgently. Mr. Gooch read the telegram. Written under the influence of some strong mental excitement, he agreed. I wonder why he doesn't come to the office if he wants to see you so badly. He's working very hard, finishing that novel for Prodder and Wiggs. Can't leave it, I suppose. Well, it's a nice day. If you look at things here, I think I'll motor down and let him give me lunch. As Mr. McKinnon's car reached the crossroads a mile from Honeysuckle Cottage, he was aware of a gesticulating figure by the hedge. He stopped the car. Morning, Rodman. Thank God you've come, said James. It seemed to Mr. McKinnon that the young man looked paler and thinner. Would you mind walking the rest of the way? There's something I want to speak to you about. Mr. McKinnon alighted, and James, as he glanced at him, felt cheered and encouraged by the very sight of the man. The literary agent was a grim, hard-bitten person, to whom, when they called at their offices to arrange terms, editors kept their faces turned, so that they might at least retain their back collar studs. There was no sentiment in Andrew McKinnon. Editresses of society papers practised their blandishments on him in vain, and many a publisher had waked screaming in the night, dreaming that he was signing a McKinnon contract. Well, Rodman, he said, Prodder and Wiggs have agreed to our terms. I was writing to tell you so when your wire arrived. I had a lot of trouble with them, but it's fixed at twenty percent, rising to twenty-five, and two hundred pounds advance royalties on day of publication. Good, said James absently. Good. McKinnon, do you remember my aunt Layla J. Pinkney? Remember her? Why, I was her agent all her life. Uh, of course. Then you know the sort of tripe she wrote. No, author, said Mr. McKinnon reprovingly, who pulls down a steady twenty thousand pounds a year, writes tripe. Well, anyway, you know her stuff. Who better? When she died, she left me five thousand pounds in her house, Honeysuckle Cottage. I I'm living there now. McKinnon, 
Do you believe in haunted houses? No. Yet I tell you solemnly that Honeysuckle Cottage is haunted. By your aunt, said Mr. McKinnon, surprised. By her influence. There's a malign spell over the place, a sort of miasma of sentimentalism. Everybody who enters it succumbs. Tut, tut, you mustn't have these fancies. They aren't fancies. You aren't seriously meaning to tell me. Well, how do you account for this? The book you were speaking about, which Prodder and Wiggs are to publish, The Secret Nine, every time I sit down to write it, a girl keeps trying to sneak in. Into the room. Into the story. You don't want a love interest in your sort of book, said Mr. McKinnon, shaking, he said. It delays the action. I know it does. And every day I have to keep shooing this infernal female out. An awful girl, McKinnon, a soppy, soupy, treacly, drooping girl with a roguish smile. This morning she tried to butt into the scene where Lester Gage is trapped in the den of the mysterious leper. No, she did, I assure you. I had to rewrite three pages before I could get her out of it. And that's not the worst. Do you know, McKinnon, that at this moment I'm actually living the plot of a typical Layla J. Pinkney novel in just the setting she always used? And I can see the happy ending coming nearer every day. A week ago, a girl was knocked down by a car at my door and I've had to put her up. And every day, I realise more clearly that sooner or later, I shall ask her to marry me. Don't do it, said Mr. McCannon, the stout bachelor. You're too young to marry. So was Methuselah, said James, a stouter. But all the same, I know I'm going to do it. It's the influence of this awful house weighing upon me. I feel like an eggshell in a maelstrom. I'm being sucked on by a force too strong for me to resist. This morning I found myself kissing her dog. No, I did, and I loathe the little beast. Yesterday I got up at dawn and plucked a nosegay of flowers for her, wet with the dew. Rodman, it's a fact. I laid them at her door and went downstairs, kicking myself all the way. And there in the hall was the apple-cheeked housekeeper regarding me archly. If she didn't murmur, bless her sweet young arts, my ears deceived me. Why don't you pack up and leave? If I do, I lose the five thousand pounds. Ah, said Mr. McKinnon. I can't understand what's happened. It's the same with all haunted houses. My aunt's subliminal ether vibrations have woven themselves into the texture of the place, creating an atmosphere which forces the ego of all who come in contact with it to attune themselves to it. It's either that or something to do with the fourth dimension. Mr. McKinnon laughed scornfully. Tut, tut, he said again. This is pure imagination. What has happened is that you've been working too hard. You'll see this precious atmosphere of yours will have no effect on me. That's exactly why I asked you to come down. I hoped you might break the spell. I will that, said Mr. McKinnon jovially. The fact that the literary agent spoke little at lunch caused James no apprehension. Mr. McKinnon was ever a silent trencherman. From time to time, James caught him stealing a glance at the girl, who was well enough to come down to meals now, limping pathetically. But he could read nothing in his face. 
and yet the mere look of his face was a consolation. He was so solid, so matter-of-fact, so exactly like an unemotional coconut. You've done me good, said James with a sigh of relief as he escorted the agent down the garden to his car after lunch. I felt all along that I could rely on your rugged common sense. The whole atmosphere of the place seems different now. Mr. McKinnon did not speak for a moment. He seemed to be plunged into thought. Rodman, he said as he got into his car, I've been thinking over that suggestion of yours about putting a love interest into the secret nine. I think you're wise. The story needs it. After all, what is there greater in the world than love? Love, love, I. It's the sweetest word in the language. Put in a heroine and let her marry Lester Gage. If, said James grimly, she does succeed in worming her way in, she'll jolly well marry the mysterious leper. But look here, I don't understand. It was seeing that girl that changed me, proceeded Mr. McKinnon. And as James stared at him aghast, tears suddenly filled his hard-boiled eyes. He openly snuffled. Ah, seeing her sitting there, under the roses, with all that smell of honeysuckle and all, and the birdies singing so sweet in the garden, and the sun lighting up her bonny face, the poor wee lass, he muttered, dabbing at his eyes, the poor wee bonny lass. Rodman, he said, his voice quavering, I've decided that we're being hard on Prodder and Wiggs. Wiggs has had sickness in his home lately. He mustn't be hard on a man who's had sickness in his home, eh, hey, lad? No, no. I'm going to take back that contract and alter it to a flat 12% and no advance royalties. What? But you shan't lose by it, Rodman. No, no, you shan't lose by it, my manny. I'm going to waive my commission. The poor bonny wee lass. The car rolled off down the road. Mr. McKinnon, seated in the back, was blowing his nose violently. This is the end, said James. It is necessary at this point to pause and examine James Rodman's position with an unbiased eye. The average man, unless he puts himself in James's place, will be unable to appreciate it. James, he will feel, was making a lot of fuss about nothing. Here he was, drawing daily closer and closer to a charming girl with big blue eyes, and surely rather to be envied than pitied. But we must remember that James was one of nature's bachelors, and no ordinary man looking forward dreamily to a little home of his own with a loving wife putting out his slippers and changing the gramophone records can realise the intensity of the instinct for self-preservation which animates nature's bachelors in times of peril. James Rodman had a congenital horror of matrimony. Though a young man, he had allowed himself to develop a great many habits which were as the breath of life to him. And these habits, he knew instinctively, a wife would shoot to pieces within a week of the end of the honeymoon. James liked to breakfast in bed, and having breakfasted to smoke in bed and knock the ashes out on the carpet. What wife would tolerate this practice? James liked to pass his days in a tennis shirt, grey flannel trousers and slippers. 
What wife ever rests until she has enclosed her husband in a stiff collar, tight boots, and a morning suit and taken him with her to Te Musico? These and a thousand other thoughts of the same kind flashed through the unfortunate young man's mind as the days went by, and every day that passed seemed to draw him nearer to the brink of the chasm. Fate appeared to be taking a malicious pleasure in making things as difficult for him as possible. Now that the girl was well enough to leave her bed, she spent her time sitting in a chair on the sun-sprinkled porch, and James had to read to her, and poetry at that. And not the jolly wholesome sort of poetry the boys are turning out nowadays either, good honest stuff about sin and gasworks and decaying corpses, but the old-fashioned kind with rhymes in it dealing almost exclusively with love. The weather, moreover, continued superb. The honeysuckle cast its sweet scent on the gentle breeze. The roses over the porch stirred and nodded. The flowers in the garden were lovelier than ever. The birds sang their little throats sore. And every evening there was a magnificent sunset. It was almost as if nature were doing it on purpose. At last James intercepted Dr. Brady as he was leaving after one of his visits and put the thing to him squarely. Where's that girl going? The doctor patted him on the arm. Not yet, Rodman, he said in a low, understanding voice. No need to worry yourself about that. Mustn't be moved for days and days and days. I might almost say weeks and weeks and weeks. Weeks and weeks, cried James. And weeks, said Dr. Brady. He prodded James roguishly in the abdomen. Good luck to you, my boy. Good luck to you, he said. It was some consolation to James that the mushy physician immediately afterwards tripped over William on his way down the path and broke his stethoscope. When a man is up against it like James, every little helps. He was walking dismally back to the house after this conversation when he was met by the apple-cheeked housekeeper. The little lady will let me speak to you, sir, said the apple-cheeked exhibit, rubbing her hands. Would she? said James hollowly. So sweet and pretty she looks, sir. Oh, sir, you wouldn't believe. Like a blessed angel sitting there with her dear eyes all shining. Don't do it, cried James with extraordinary vehemence. Don't do it. He found the girl propped up on the cushions and thought once again how singularly he disliked her. And yet, even as he thought this, some force against which he had to fight madly was whispering to him, Go and take that little hand. Breathe into that little ear the burning words that will make that little face turn away, crimsoned with blushes. He wiped a bead of perspiration from his forehead and sat down. Mrs. Um, Stick in the Mud, what's her name, says uh, you want to see me. The girl nodded. I've had a letter from Uncle Henry. I wrote to him as soon as I was better and told him what had happened, and he's coming here tomorrow morning. Uncle Henry? That's what I call him, but he's, he's really no relation. He's my guardian. He and Daddy were officers in the same regiment, and when Daddy was killed, fighting on the Afghan frontier, he died in Uncle Henry's arms, and, and with his last breath, begged him to take care of me. James started. A sudden wild hope had waked in his heart. Years ago, he remembered, he had read a book of his aunt's entitled Rupert's Legacy, 
and in that book, I'm engaged to marry him, said the girl quietly. Wow, shouted James. What? asked the girl, startled. A touch of cramp, said James. He was thrilling all over that wild hope had been realised. It was Daddy's dying wish that we should marry, said the girl. And dashed sensible of him, too. Dashed sensible, said James warmly. And yet, she went on a little wistfully. I, I sometimes wonder. Don't, said James, don't. You must respect Daddy's dying wish. There's nothing like Daddy's dying wish. You can't beat it. So he's coming here tomorrow, is he? Capital, capital. T to lunch, I suppose. Excellent. I'll run down and tell Mrs. Who is it to lay in another chop. It was with a gay and uplifted heart that James strolled the garden and smoked his pipe next morning. A great cloud seemed to have rolled itself away from him. Everything was for the best in the best of all possible worlds. He had finished the secret nine and shipped it off to Mr. McKinnon, and now, as he strolled, there was shaping itself in his mind a corking plot about a man with only half a face who lived in a secret den and terrorised London with a series of shocking murders. And what made them so shocking was the fact that each of his victims, when discovered, was found to have only half a face too. The rest had been chipped off, presumably by some blunt instrument. The thing was coming out magnificently when suddenly his attention was diverted by a piercing scream. Out of the bushes fringing the river that ran beside the garden burst the apple-cheeked housekeeper. Oh, sir! Oh, sir! Oh, sir! What is it? demanded James irritably. Oh, sir! Oh, sir! Oh, sir! Yes, and then what? The little dog, sir, he's in the river. Well, whistle him to come out. Oh, sir, do come quick. He'll be drowned. James followed her through the bushes, taking off his coat as he went. He was saying to himself, I will not rescue this dog. I do not like the dog. It's high time he had a bath, and in any case, it would be much simpler to stand on the bank and fish for him with a rake. Only an ass out of a Layla J. Pinkney book would dive into a beastly river to save. At this point, he dived. Toto, alarmed by the splash, swam rapidly for the bank, but James was too quick for him. Grasping him firmly by the neck, he scrambled ashore and ran for the house, followed by the housekeeper. The girl was seated on the porch. Over her there bent the tall, soldierly figure of a man with keen eyes and greying hair. The housekeeper raced up. Oh, miss! Toto! In the river! He saved them! He plunged in and saved them! The girl drew a quick breath. Gallant damn! By Jove! By God! Yes! Gallant! By George! exclaimed the soldierly man. The girl seemed to wake from a reverie. Uh, Uncle Henry... This is Mr. Rodman. Mr. Rodman, my guardian, Colonel Carteret. Proud to meet you, sir, said the colonel, his honest blue eyes glowing as he fingered his short, crisp moustache. As fine a thing as I ever heard of, damn. Yes, you are brave. Brave, the girl whispered. I am wet, wet, said James, and went upstairs to change his clothes. When he came down for lunch, he found his relief that the girl had decided not to join them, and Colonel Carteret was silent and preoccupied. James, exerting himself in his capacity of host, tried him with the weather, golf, India, the government. 
the high cost of living, first-class cricket, the modern dancing craze and murderers he had met, but the other still preserved that strange, absent-minded silence. It was only when the meal was concluded and James had produced cigarettes that he came out of his trance. Rodman, he said, I should like to speak to you. I yes, said James, thinking it was about time. Rodman, said Colonel Carter, or rather George, I may call you George, he added with a sort of wistful diffidence that had a singular charm. Uh, certainly, replied James, if you wish it, though my name is James. James, eh? <laughs> well, well, it amounts to the same thing, eh? What damn, by gad, said the Colonel, with a momentary return of his bluff, soldierly manner. Well then, James, I have uh, something that I wish to say to you. Did Miss Maynard, um, did Rose, happen to tell you anything about myself in a, um, in connection with herself? She mentioned that you and she were engaged to be married. The colonel's tightly drawn lips quivered. No longer, he said. What? No, John, my boy, uh, James. No, uh, James, my boy, no longer. While you were upstairs changing your clothes, she told me, breaking down, poor child, as she spoke, that she wished our engagement to be at an end. James half rose from the table, his cheeks blanched. You don't mean that, he gasped. Colonel Carteret nodded. He was staring out of the window, his fine eyes set in a look of pain. But this is nonsense, cried James. This is absurd. She, she mustn't be allowed to chop and change like this. I mean to say it isn't fair. Don't think of me, my boy. I'm not. I mean... Did she give any reason? Her eyes did. Her eyes did. Her eyes, when she looked at you on the porch as you stood there, young, heroic, having just saved the life of the dog she loves. It's you who have won that tender heart, my boy. Now listen, protested James. You aren't going to sit there and tell me that a girl falls in love with a man just because he saves a dog from drowning. Why, surely? said Colonel Carteret, surprised. What better reason could she have? He sighed. It's the old, old story, my boy. Youth to youth. I'm an old man, I should have known. I should have foreseen. Yes, youth to youth. You aren't a bit old. Yes, yes. No, no. Yes, yes. Don't keep saying yes, yes, cried James, clutching at his hair. Besides, she wants a steady old buffer, a steady, sensible man of medium age, to look after her. Colonel Carteret shook his head with a gentle smile. This is mere quixotry, my boy. It's splendid of you to take this attitude, but no, no. Yes, yes. No, no. He gripped James's hand for an instant, then rose and walked to the door. That's all I wish to say, Tom, uh, James, uh, James. I just thought that you ought to know how matters stood. Go to her, my boy. Go to her. And don't let any thought of an old man's broken dream keep you from pouring out what is in your heart. I'm an old soldier, lad. An old soldier. I've learned to take the rough with the smooth. But I think... I, I think I'll leave you now. I. I should like to be alone for a while. If you need me, you'll find me in the raspberry bushes. He'd scarcely gone when James also left the room. He took his hat and stick and walked blindly out of the garden, he knew not whither, 
His brain was numbed. Then, as his powers of reasoning returned, he told himself that he should have foreseen this ghastly thing. If there was one type of character over which Layla J. Pinkney had been wont to spread herself, it was the pathetic guardian, who loves his ward, but relinquishes her to the younger man. No wonder the girl had broken off the engagement. Any elderly guardian who allowed himself to come within a mile of Honeysuckle Cottage was simply asking for it. And then, as he turned to walk back, a dull defiance gripped James. Why, he asked, should he be put upon in this manner? If the girl liked to throw over this man, why should he be the goat? He saw his way clearly now. He just wouldn't do it, that was all. And if they didn't like it, they could lump it. Full of a new fortitude, he strode in at the gate. A tall, soldierly figure emerged from the raspberry bushes and came to meet him. Well, said Colonel Carteret. Well, said James defiantly. Am I to congratulate you? James caught his keen blue eye and hesitated. It was not going to be so simple as he had supposed. Well, ah, he said. Into the keen blue eyes there came a look that James had not seen there before. It was the stern, hard look, which probably had caused men to bestow upon this old soldier the name of Cold Steel Carteret. You have not asked Rose to marry you. Um, no, not yet. The keen blue eyes grew keener and bluer. Rodman, said Colonel Carteret in a strange, quiet voice. I have known that little girl since she was a tiny child. For years she has been all in all to me. Her father died in my arms and with his last breath bade me see that no harm come to his darling. I have nursed her through mumps, measles, ay, and chicken pox, and I live but for her happiness. He paused with a significance that made James's toes curl. Rodman, he said, do you know what I would do to any man who trifled with that little girl's affections? He reached into his hip pocket and an ugly-looking revolver glittered in the sunlight. I would shoot him like a dog. Like, like a dog, faltered James. Like a dog, said Colonel Carteret. He took James's arms and turned him towards the house. She's on the porch. Go to her. And if, he broke off. But tut, he said in a kindlier voice. I am doing you an injustice, my boy. I know it. But, oh, you are, said James fervently. Your heart's in the right place. Oh, absolutely, said James. Then go to her, my boy. Later on you may have something to tell me. You'll find me in the strawberry beds. It was very cool and fragrant on the porch. Overhead little breezes played and laughed among the roses. Somewhere in the distance sheep bells tinkled, and in the shrubbery a thrush was singing its evensong. Seated in her chair behind a wicker table laden with tea things, Rose Maynard watched James as he shambled up the path. Tea's ready, she called gaily. Where's Uncle Henry? A look of pity and distress flitted for a moment over her flower-like face. Oh, oh, I, I, I forgot, she whispered. Uh, he's, he's in his strawberry beds, said James in a low voice. She nodded unhappily. Of course, of course. 
Oh, why is life like this? James heard her whisper. He sat down. He looked at the girl. She was leaning back with closed eyes, and he thought he had never seen such a little squirt in his life. The idea of passing his remaining days in her society revolted him. He was stoutly opposed to the idea of marrying anyone, but if, as happens to the best of us, he ever were compelled to perform the wedding glide, he had always hoped it would be with some lady golf champion who would help him with his putting, and thus, by bringing his handicap down a notch or two, enable him to save something from the wreck, so to speak. But to link his lot with a girl who read his aunt's books and liked them, a girl who could tolerate the presence of the dog Toto, a girl who clasped her hands in pretty, childish joy when she saw a nasturtium in bloom. It was too much. Nevertheless, he took her hand and began to speak. Miss Maynard. Rose. She opened her eyes and cast them down. A flush had come into her cheeks. The dog Toto at her side sat up and begged for cake, disregarded. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a lonely man who lived in a cottage all by himself. He stopped. Was it James Rodman who was talking this bilge? Yes, whispered the girl. But one day there came to him out of nowhere a little fairy princess. She... He stopped again, but this time not because of the sheer shame of listening to his own voice. What caused him to interrupt his tale was the fact that at this moment the tea-table suddenly began to rise slowly in the air, tilting as it did so a considerable quantity of hot tea onto the knees of his trousers. Ouch! cried James, leaping. The table continued to rise, and then fell sideways, revealing the homely countenance of William, who, concealed by the cloth, had been taking a nap beneath it. He moved slowly forward, his eyes on Toto. For many a long day William had been desirous of putting to the test once and for all the problem of whether Toto was edible or not. Sometimes he thought yes, and other times no. Now seemed an admirable opportunity for a definite decision. He advanced on the object of his experiment, making a low whistling noise through his nostrils, not unlike a boiling kettle, and Toto after one long look of incredulous horror, tucked his shapely tail between his legs and, turning, raced for safety. He had laid a course in a bee-line for the open garden gate, and William, shaking a dish of marmalade off his head a little petulantly, galloped ponderously after him. Rose Maynard staggered to his feet. "'Oh, save him!' she cried. Without a word, James added himself to the procession. His interest in Toto was but tepid. What he wanted was to get near enough to William to discuss with him that matter of the tea on his trousers. He reached the road and found that the order of the runners had not changed. For so small a dog, Toto was moving magnificently. A cloud of dust rose as he skidded round the corner. William followed. James followed William. And so they passed Farmer Burkett's barn, Farmer Giles's cowshed, the place where Farmer Willett's pigsty used to be before the big fire, and the Bunch of Grapes public house. Jonathan Biggs, proprietor, licensed to sell tobacco, wines and spirits. And it was as they were turning down the lane that leads past Farmer Robinson's chicken run, that Toto, thinking swiftly, bolted abruptly into a small drain pipe. William! 
roared James, coming up at a canter. He stopped to pluck a branch from the hedge and swooped darkly on. William had been crouching before the pipe, making a noise like a bassoon into its interior, but now he rose and came beamingly to James. His eyes were aglow with chumminess and affection, and placing his forefeet on James's chest, he licked him three times on the face in rapid succession, and as he did so, something seemed to snap in James. The scales seemed to fall from James's eyes. For the first time he saw William as he really was, the authentic type of dog that saves his master from a frightful peril. A wave of emotion swept over him. William, he muttered, William. William was making an early supper of a half-brick he'd found in the road. James stopped and patted him fondly. William, he whispered, you knew when the time had come to change the conversation, didn't you, old boy? He straightened himself. Come, William, he said, another four miles and we reach Meadowsweet Junction. Make it snappy and we shall just catch the Up Express. First stop, London. William looked up into his face and it seemed to James that he gave a brief nod of comprehension and approval. James turned. Through the trees to the east he could see the red roof of Honeysuckle Cottage lurking like some evil dragon in ambush. Then, together, man and dog passed silently into the sunset. That, concluded Mr. Mulliner, is the story of my distant cousin James Rodman. As to whether it's true, that, of course, is an open question. I, personally, am of the opinion that it is. There is no doubt that James did go to live at Honeysuckle Cottage, and while there, underwent some experience which has left an irradicable mark upon him. His eyes today have that unmistakable look which is to be seen only in the eyes of confirmed bachelors whose feet have been dragged to the very brink of the pit and who have gazed at close range into the naked face of matrimony. And if further proof be needed, there is William. He is now James's inseparable companion. Would any man be habitually seen in public with a dog like William, unless he had some solid cause to be grateful to him, unless they were linked together by some deep and imperishable memory? I think not. Myself, when I observe William coming along the street, I cross the road and look into a shop window till he has passed. I am not a snob but I dare not risk my position in society by being seen talking to that curious compound. Nor is the precaution an unnecessary one. There is about William a shameless absence of appreciation of class distinctions which recalls the worst excesses of the French Revolution. I have seen him with those eyes chivy a Pomeranian belonging to a baroness in her own right from near the Achilles statue to within a few yards of the marble arch. And yet, James walks daily with him in Piccadilly. It is surely significant. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. So that was Honeysuckle Cottage from P.G. Woodhouse. So let me tell you something about the story first, and then I'll tell you something about him which is the opposite way around from the way I normally do it. 
So, as you know, this story, you know the story, you've just listened to it, but the story was first published in the collection Meet Mr. Mulliner in 1927. And Meet Mr. Mulliner is a collection of short stories featuring a character named, and not surprisingly, Mr. Mulliner, who tells humorous stories about his various relatives. Most of them aren't ghost stories. In fact, I think this is the only one that is. Honeysuckle Cottage is a short story about James Rodman, as you know, and you know the story there, and he sends up, as he does, um, the the tropes of the of the very popular sweetest saccharine romance novels. Probably not too far wrong. I think they're a bit raunchy now. I don't really read romance novels. I, but from when I'm going through uh, Amazon, I see that there's lots of them about werewolves and they inevitably show a man with a bare torso and rippling muscles or billionaires. And probably there are some about billionaire werewolves. Um, so this says, this says something telling about the psyche of um, the typically female audience that read that. Um, just as the lit RPG books about uh, rippling heroes who go and kill all their enemies and uh, have lots of women throw themselves at them in the stories says something about the psyche of the masculine psyche of those. We are driven by evolution, whatever we think. Anyway, uh, I don't know why I got into that so early, but there we are, PG Woodhouse. So Pelham... Grenville Woodhouse, popularly known as P.G. Woodhouse, was a British humorist and an author who was born on October 15th, 1881 in Guildford, Surrey, England. He's widely regarded as one of the greatest comic writers in English literature and is best known for his humorous and cleverly written novels and short stories featuring the characters of Jeeves and Worcester, most famously really, Smith and Blanding's Castle. Woodhouse was the son of a British judge who worked in Hong Kong. His mother was a talented writer who encouraged his love of reading and writing. Woodhouse was ed- educated at Dulwich College and later at the University of Oxford. However, he left the university without completing his degree and decided to pursue a career as a writer. Many did that. I don't think so many do that now. It's not... Um, being a writer isn't really a... Um, it's like being a teacher. Once being a teacher was a very prestigious thing in the community and relatively well-paid and now it's not much. Even doctors now, I think, you know, certainly in the UK, they're just used, they're just like employees, the same as anybody else. I think that's untrue in the USA, but um, certainly their status has plummeted um, in the same way that writers has as well. I, I, I actually don't think it's the same reason, but, um, but there we are. So Woodhouse started his writing career as a journalist and humorist for various magazines and newspapers including Punch and the Strand magazine. His first book, The Pot Hunters, was published in 1902, and he went on to publish over 90 books, including novels, collections of short stories and plays. In 1914, Woodhouse moved to the USA, where he continued to write and became a popular figure in the literary and social circles of New York. During World War II, Woodhouse was living in France, and he was taken prisoner by the Germans. Germans. He spent several months in a detention camp and was later released, but the controversy surrounding his imprisonment caused him to leave England and move permanently to the United States. Throughout his career, Woodhouse's writing was celebrated for its wit, humour and impeccable comic timing. His characters, such as the hapless Bertie Wooster and his valet Jeeves, became iconic features in popular culture and are still widely recognised today. They certainly are. Hugh Laurie. Uh, I once was driving through South Kenya years ago, and um, I went down the side street, and there they were. 
I don't know if you've seen the, the Jeeves and Worcester episodes with uh, Hugh Laurie and um, Stephen Fry, both amazing chaps who I still admire. Anyway, there they were standing on the street, and they were, they were in the, going to a door, and there was a moose's head sticking out. I don't know if you've seen that episode. Yeah, but I went past that, and it was filming. Uh, anyway, that's just a by-the-by. So, so um, yeah, great fun. Um, he lived until he was uh, 93, and he died in 1975. But this was when he was criticised for continuing to write when he was in the, under German control. Um, people thought it was unpatriotic for him to continue to write. I don't necessarily see that, to be fair. But he got a lot of stick for it. And just imagine if he was alive now and it was, he was on Twitter. He'd be ripped apart on social media for that. He'd be absolutely destroyed. And... Um, so he continued to write. So another interesting thing about him is he was married to a lady called Ethel Wayman. So Ethel Wayman was an English actress and singer born in 1896. So let me just check his date. So a few years younger than him, to be fair. Um, and um, that was normal in those days, I think. And he, she, um, she was began her career as a child performer, apparently and went on to appear in several West End productions, including The Belle of New York and The Dairy Maids. She married him in 1914, when he was working as a lyricist for musicals. This must be just before he went to the USA, because remember it said he went to the USA in 1914. The couple had a turbulent marriage, and they separated in 1921, but they never officially divorced. This is interesting. After their separation, Wayman continued to work as an act actress, appearing in films and on stage. In the 1930s, Wayman's mental health began to decline and she was eventually committed to a psychiatric hospital where she remained for the rest of her life. Wayman's condition was never fully diagnosed but has been speculated that she suffered from bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. I would have said if she got to that age and she was able to work and then it came on like that, she's probably, probably bipolar disorder, to be fair. Um, so, despite the difficulties in their marriage, Woodhouse continued to support Wayman financially and even visited her in the hospital from time to time. He dedicated several of his books to her, including Uckridge and the Clicking of Cuthbert. Wayman died in the hospital in 1962, having never fully recovered from a mental illness. Now, he then married Edith de Selincourt. I don't know if you do it like English, de Selincourt or Selincourt. So Wayman was still alive at the time of their marriage. So what's going on here? He married her in 1947, so his first wife was in a psychiatric unit and was unable to communicate, so she must have been fairly ill. And it might have been like a catatonic schizophrenia. I used to see a lot of that, not so much now. Um, so Edith Selincourt was, previously I understand, the secretary of Ethel Wayman. Um, so it wasn't like his marriage to her wasn't legally recognised in England because he was still technically married to... Ethel Wayman, who was in hospital, even though she was in hospital, but it was recognised in the United States where they lived. So that is the answer to that, which puzzled me when I first came across it. Um, she was the daughter of a barrister and had worked as Ethel Wayman's secretary. We knew that. In addition to her work as a secretary, de Selincourt was also a writer and published several books under the name Helen Cresswell, including children's books and novels. She was known for being a devoted wife to Woodhouse and for helping him with his writing. She typed many of his manuscripts and helped him with research, with research for his books. Woodhouse dedicated several of his later books to her, including Jeeves in the Offing and Much Obliged Jeeves. After Woodhouse's death, de Selincourt continued to work as a writer and published a memoir 
about their life together called Woodhouse at Home in 1981. So that was all very interesting, wasn't it? So uh, we are quite, and I think society is quite in the uh, habit of pronouncing morally on everybody. So what do we think of Woodhouse? Well, um, the fact that he continued to write funny novels, he probably couldn't help himself when he was uh, a prisoner of the Germans. There's no question he kind of helped the German war effort. But, um, you know, but the public is... I say the public, but you know what I mean? People who bother to comment on these things can be very, very um, destructive. As we see every day now, um, everybody who sticks their head above the parapet will get ripped apart by some mob or other. And I think a really interesting thing is, so I was reading this the other day, there's like a, a, a dualistic and manichaeistic, you know, that was the early um, religion, the priests, around this time of Christianity where everything's bad and good, there is the bad and there's the good and there's nothing in between. And that's that's the point. So what we find these days is people take up a position. I am, let's say, I'm against fossil fuels. Or let's say, I am, I want to support our heroes. So, you know, both, I pick those because one would be t considered liberal, the other would be considered conservative. I want to support veterans on the one hand, the other ones I don't like, fossil fuels. And what um, what happens is, these days it seems to me, is that uh, those who take up a particular position, whether that be veganism, whether that can be, you know, uh, LGBTQ rights, whether that can be racism, whether that can be colonialism, whether that can be, um, you know, Christianity, uh, family values, you know, I want to pick some other, I want to pick a kind of spectrum of right and left wings, just to illustrate my point. Those people now consider themselves the righteous. We are righteous and our foes, and they are foes, are despicable and unrighteous. So there's no question of kind of debating and meeting it halfway. The people on the other side are what? Usually called Nazis. That's an easy one, isn't it? You know, if you don't agree with me about this, you're a Nazi or you're a, a something. And um, that means I don't have to pay any attention to you at all because you are unrighteous. And the real worry about this is when we end up with a society where people are, are, have retreated into these silos whereby they, you know, I, my belief in, you know, whatever, um, dogs, dogs are best. Uh, you're a cat person. You are beneath contempt. I will not speak to you. In fact, you are so, so, and, uh, okay, you would, probably wouldn't get that split on dogs and cats. You might. I am not, I'm not, since I've been in, you know, doing YouTube and things like that and seeing some of the comments put on, I'm kind of absolutely not i'm not surprised by anybody's opinion now i'm like you know really yeah it would have been like you really can't believe that it's just so absurd but now people just take on these um these absurd positions extreme and absurd positions really and there's no middle ground so the righteous because they're righteous can do no wrong and this unfortunately as i was going to say leads to great wrong because i am righteous you are unrighteous. Whatever I do is justified because I am righteous and you are unrighteous. So I can do anything I want to you. I can, I can kill you. I can defame you. I can smash up your house. I can, you know, even if your kids, you know, it doesn't matter. You're unrighteous. And unfortunately, this is not a new thing in human uh, history. I mean, if we just look, you know, Pol Pot and you know, the, the Cultural Revolution in China, um, Stalin's starvation, and what he did to his own people, you know, obviously the right wing, Mussolini, um, the Spanish right wing, the German right wing, you know, but these are just modern examples. 
uh, look at the the uh, look at what the, the the Catholic Church did. Look at what the Protestant reformers did. You know, so it's not it's not a modern feature, and it isn't. You know, if you think, oh, you're you're attacking Catholicism, I'm not. You know, I mean, look at look at you think all oh, the Buddhists. Look at what the Buddhists did in Myanmar, to uh, in Burma, to people who weren't Buddhist, or, or in Sri Lanka. These peace-loving Buddhists are just about as peace-loving as peace-loving Christians and peace-loving Muslims and everybody else. So what my point is this, that nobody is immune to this polarised, just despicable way of looking at the world. So um, I don't know how I got onto that from, from P.G. Woodhouse, but it is unfortunately the case. More and more, it's really depressing that there is no debate anymore, that if, if you simply don't agree with me, then you are, Welsh is a great word for this, a scumming, which is, um, means excommunicated, but I mean, a scumming is beyond the pale. I don't have to talk to you because I am virtuous and you are the opposite. You are utterly devoid of virtue. If I'm virtuous, I don't even think you're nice to your kids. Um, so there we are. Anyway, where was that going? So, uh, otherwise, I've been busy this week with the pops and trying to uh, socialise them. You know, poor old Jasper's got this lesion on his paw, which is some kind of autoimmune thing that we've biopsied. It's not cancer, so that's really good. I, being Dr. Google, Dr. Google's also a veterinarian, as well as it turns out, and I was kind of looking at, I spent the whole week looking at pictures of dogs' paws on the internet and trying to work out what it was, and I thought it was um, pemphigus foliaceus, um, which would have been not very good, really. But there were problems problems with that diagnosis. And, and you know, remember, I'm not a vet. So the one was, it, it's only on one pad of one paw. So um, typically, I now know, pemphigus is, uh, foliaceous is, is bilateral. It usually comes out, so that is to say, the lesions are symmetrical, one on either side. It usually comes on the muzzle and the face first. He didn't have any lesions there. And it usually happens in middle-aged dogs. And he's only a newborn. He's only 10 weeks old. But it was very troubling. So anyway, it's... Um, they reckon it's a hypercarotic thing, so it's basically his, his, his foot is producing keratin, but just on one pad, and they want to cut his little toe off. So, But we're hoping that it might resolve naturally, but if not, you know, we probably have to have the surgery. So there we are. So that's been on my mind a lot. Um, I've been, I'm trying to finish my latest collection of ghost and horror stories called, surprisingly, Further Ghost Stories. It's come along well. I... I, I lacked inspiration for a while i'd done the first drafts but it was like chewing sand and i was like oh i was dry and then some things happened and i've got back into it unfortunately i keep coming up with new stories and went no 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 stop stop so hopefully you'll all buy that book that would be great um but it didn't publish it so you don't have to worry i'll make it cheap don't worry it'll be cheap yeah so and i'll of course i'll do some of those and i'll read the odd one. Obviously, I don't want to read them all out because then nobody would buy the audiobook to go with all them. Oh, we've got it all for free. So, and I'm a bit like that. You know, there are, there are programs I use on the internet that are, you can pay for them. And I kind of, well, I was using a thing called uh, Magic Journey, which was a guy's put together lots and lots of work around Mid Journey, the art program. And then I thought, you know what? I've got to support him. So I put my hand in my pocket and supported him because I want people to do that for me. So to be fair, it's not, not right if I use other people's. Uh, talent, skill, hard work, and don't feel that they need a recompense because they do, you know. And it is amazing the internet's allowed us to have these audiences and allowed us to create. So it's all pretty good. The weather turned for the better. For it's Easter now. It's Easter Saturday, although that isn't a real thing. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. 
we have Easter Monday because that's a holiday because of Sunday being a holiday, if you know what I mean. And so we're in the middle of that now. And it's actually sunny for the first time. Some other really cool things happened. Well, lots of cool things happened, to be fair. I went to see my mum. I was um, um, a couple of members of my family are looking for new jobs, so I've been talking to them about job applications. One was my daughter, Catherine, and the other is Sheila's um, son, Liam, and uh, they're both thinking about changing their jobs. Uh, for better jobs, I hope. And uh, so I've been helping them with that. What else? I mean, this is possibly quite boring. But um, 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 well, I was going to say something. There was something tremendously interesting I wanted to say. It wasn't this, but I just wonder what you think about this. So oh, a couple of years ago, I started getting into coffee. And before, I wasn't ever much of a coffee person. But now I'm kind of like, uh, well, try that coffee, try that coffee. And I particularly like Guatemalan coffee. And I find that of all kinds of coffee in the world, I prefer Central American coffee. There's something about the flavor. So Sumatran and Javan and stuff like that from Asian, Indian, is it's okay. But and, and not even Colombian, but kind of Central Guatemalan and uh, places like that. And it, anyway, similar thing happened when I was up in Scotland before Christmas. We ended up going in the whiskey shop and I ended up uh, getting this um, malt whiskey. And uh, so now I've been trying different malt whiskies. So I've had a Singleton, which is a Speyside whiskey. And I've had Ochentoshen, which is, I think it's from sort of the Glasgow area. And then I tried Talisker, which is a Sky whiskey. And I like Glenlivet. I like, I think I prefer Glenfiddich, which is Speyside. And I, I, I thought, well, I don't want to be prejudiced. So I got, and I, would, I like to collect my Gaelic people together. And um, there's a thing called the Columba Project, I don't know if you know, and it's, it joins the Gaelic-speaking communities of Ireland and Scotland. So it's a kind of a, a reconstitution, in a funny way, in a, in, a, in a small way, of the once the Gaelic-speaking Commonwealth uh, would stretch from Cape Roth to Bantry Bay at one point, and the bards would move from one end to the other. This is maybe what I want to do, really. And they would uh, be given hospitality, and they would just turn up somewhere, and they would tell the stories and do all of this, and they were welcomed. Uh, yes, it is what I want to do, really. Um, but uh, I've got the pups now, so... Uh, oh, yeah, so, so I was saying I've been looking after the pups and uh, drinking whiskey. But only one unit a night. I don't know if that's too much as well. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I got some Bushmills as well, some malt... Irish whiskey. I'm starting to get to know the tastes, so that's quite cool. Quite like that. I'm even thinking of taking uh, cigars up, but probably neither of these things are health ploys, are they? Anyway, there was something else I was going to say, but I can't remember what it was now. Oh, yeah, I do remember. So, September-ish, we went to Glastonbury, and we went, went to the Chalice Well. So, I maybe said this before, that's where the red spring, the iron stained spring comes up and it's just about 10 yards away yeah 10 yards probably from the white spring which is the calcium stained spring and they both they rise up very close together and in the garden there there's lots of apple trees because of course it was supposed to be the original avalon the isle of apples and uh, where king arthur went and so there was when we were there it was apple time there was tons of apples for free you could just eat them so i sat there in chalicewell gardens while Sheila danced in shimmering energy, I was eating apples. And, um, of course, you can get an upset stomach if you eat too many apples. But I didn't eat too many, I just ate a few, and I collected the pips, and I brought the pips back up to Cumberland, a long way further north. And I planted some in compost inside the house. They did not germinate. 
And then I put some outside and thought, well, these aren't going to work. Uh, and I've got three apple saplings. I mean, they're tiny seedlings, really, coming up now. So I thought, that's absolutely splendid. So I've, put, I've repotted them. I've put them in a pot each. And in, you know, I don't know how long it takes. I've got a feeling I've told this story before. But I don't know how long it'll take. But um, maybe in 20 years, somebody will be able to eat apples from those apple trees, which I'm going to plant when they grow on the ground between our house and the river. So they'll just grow like apple trees. And I'm hoping, I mean, we're 300 miles further north. I should think it wouldn't make a lot of difference in the... I mean, we do have apple trees up here that give fruit. So I, I would hope that these would as well. So that's rather splendid. So everything's splendid. I hope you're splendid. Um, hope you enjoyed that. I, when I was narrating it, a couple of times I had to stop because I was laughing and I had to do bits again. Um, but there we are. I've always liked it. I remember reading in my 20s. I read a lot of things thinking I needed to. And I read a lot of P.G. Woodhouse and also Evelyn Waugh's uh, humorous novels as well. They're, they're quite similar. They had just had me falling about la laughing. Um, okay. Right. Hope you're well. Bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to do the I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.